You're listening to a special edition of The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio 2 here at Midori House in London. I'm Carlotta Rebello. Today, we're going to look back on the Chiefs Summit, which took place in Dallas, Texas at the start of November. The Chiefs, in case you need reminding, is Monaco's unique global gathering for the sharpest minds in business, and it is hosted by Monaco's chairman, Talib Roulet, and our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. We've got lots of great voices coming up in the next 30 minutes, including Catrice Hardy, the executive editor of the Dallas Morning News, Evelyn Webster, the CEO of global fitness favorite Soul Cycle, and last but not least, the store owner and designer Sid Mashburn tells us about Southern fashion. All that and more coming up in the next 30 minutes, right here on Monocle 24. You are listening to a special edition of The Briefing with me, Carlotta Rubello. We begin today's program with the author and former Marine Corps Special Operations Team Leader, Elliot Ackerman. He told Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Roulet, about his book, 2034, a novel of the next world war, and how it relates to our perceptions of global conflict. So 2034 is a novel. It's a work of speculative fiction that imagines what it would look like if the U.S. and China went to war primarily at sea in the aforementioned year. And so the book is told uh, from, the per- from the perspective of sort of five principal characters. Uh, you know, one is a uh, U.S. Navy Commodore, female. Uh, the other is a Marine fighter pilot, Major Chris Wedge Mitchell, because a wedge is the world's oldest and simplest tool, and so is he. Um, We sort of throw back to this 20th century vision of Americana. Uh, The other one is a member of the national security staff uh, in the White House, who's a first-generation Indian American. Uh, Then the story is also told in the perspective of a Chinese admiral who begins the novel as the military attaché to the United States, and then the last character. This guy named uh, Brigadier General Qasim Farshad. His backstory is he's the godson of Qasim Soleimani. A, uh, he is a veteran of the Forever Wars, except he fought on the opposite side of the United States, and he is a general in the Iranian Quds Force. And sort of through their five perspectives and a few other characters, you're kind of taken into this uh, crisis, and you as a reader kind of go up the ladder of escalation in the year 2034, but it's the type of ladder of escalation we have seen in the past. It's sort of a, almost like a guns of August, August of 1914 type of scenario that shows how in some ways through miscalculation these types of wars we as human beings seem to perennially stumble into. I'll come back in a moment to how you witness what we see right now, but there are so many elements of the book which we've now seen in this current conflict. Uh, and there are some things which seem so almost fantastical uh, when, when you read them, and yet these have become major headlines in this uh, current conflict uh, over, over in Ukraine, and also how it's spilled out um, beyond. What's interesting about the book is I find the book, it's, it's very spare in part. So here's, you know, here we're talking about global conflict. And oftentimes this is, of course, a sh- it's a shoot 'em up uh, it, it's gore, it's, it's all of these aspects that we think about uh, conflict, but there is, there is something very 
reduced. Um, it, it's very evocative. It leaves much to the imagination. And I was sort of curious at a time when you have to think about the rights and when, where this book goes and it's become a Netflix series and what happens to it. Was that a discussion with your, your agent, but also the publishers as well, that, that, that you had this almost reduced approach in terms of the narrative? I think that's sort of like a, sty- a little bit of a stylistic choice. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I served in the military for many years and had an eight-year career in special operations and intelligence before I became a, a novelist and a journalist. And I also uh, report on various conflicts and kind of spending many years hanging out around wars. One of the conclusions I've come is sort of the least interesting part of a war is actually the war itself. Like there's a sameness to people shooting at each other no matter what country you're in. So, um, so you have to sort of, I think it's less interesting to focus on that, and it's more interesting to focus on some of the unique dynamics that exist. And so you sort of get a, in the book, I mean, the, it's a conscious choice. There aren't chapters on chapters and pages on pages of big battle scenes. Um, you're kind of taken up to the brink, and much of the action will happen off the page, because I think what is most interesting are the incremental decisions and the personalities of how do we, how do we get here so the battle is being fought. Um, maybe... When you flip on CNN, whatever your, your chosen uh, news source is, and you've watched what's happening now, and of course, you know, we talk about the conflict in the Ukraine, but obviously this book is, is you know, a, about a flare-up uh, that, that, of course, happens uh, off the coast of, of China. We've just come off the back of the Congress, uh, and you know, could you have imagined uh, that we would be in this position right now? I mean, just listening to what the China narrative has been over these past few weeks when you were, I don't know, writing this out in the Hamptons, wherever you wrote the book, uh, all, those, all those summers ago. Yeah, you caught me, it was in the Hamptons. Anyway. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things, I mean, there's two things that fascinate, I think make war sort of an endlessly fascinating subject. One, it is something deeply human. You know, we have always done this through the ages. There's, you know, from, from the Iliad up to the present. This is some, an action that humans continually engage in. And one of the things that makes all wars the same is hard-baked into any war is miscalculation. Someone is miscalculating because both sides, if it is a two-sided war, believe they will win. So obviously somebody got it wrong. And to understand the miscalculation, at a certain point you have to sort of focus on the individuals involved. So we talk about Ukraine. How remarkable is it, just in a character study, that Putin thought he would walk into Ukraine and be greeted, at least by Ukrainians in the East, as a liberator. Like, what a huge, staggering miscalculation. And I don't know if anyone here has spent time in Ukraine. I'd spent time in Ukraine before the February 24th invasion, but, like, you know, you spend an afternoon there, you could tell, like, wow, Ukrainians, they really don't like Russians. And, and, And with cause, because they've been fighting a war with Russia, not since February of this year, but since, really, 2014. And this also gets into, you know, why I think it's interesting to write and tell stories about war, how important narrative is. What are the stories people are telling themselves as they go to war? What are the stories societies are telling themselves as they do this? Because those stories feature into them's calculation too. You know, for instance, to give an American example, you know, a lot of people know where they were on September 11th, 2001. Um, I remember the day, but the thing I remember the most is actually not what I was doing that Tuesday, it's what I was doing that Sunday. I was a college student, and I was heading into the military. Uh, I knew that was my path. And a new series had prim- was premiering that night on HBO. And it was Band of Brothers. I'm 
sure many of you are familiar with it, but you know, this sort of sepia-toned, nostalgic story about the greatest generation. So what does it say about the United States that right as September 11th happened, the stories we were telling ourselves, or at least the stories that Hollywood executives had determined Americans wanted to hear, were ones in which there was a great generation, we were going across the world to liberate and oppressed people. So that's what America was imbibing. And then 9-11 happens. And I think you can't understand the journey we took over many years to go fight these overseas wars, the fact that we were going to countries like Iraq and Afghanistan to spread democracy, to liberate peoples, if you don't understand where the country was at at that moment. So I think narrative is incredibly important uh, when we talk about trying to understand war. Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, in conversation with Elliot Ackerman. Now, we're going to hear from Catrice Hardy, the executive editor of the Dallas Morning News. Catrice is an industry veteran who's recently taken the reins of this historic newspaper, and she told our U.S. editor Chris Lord why journalism in the city is thriving. Dallas is the fourth largest metro in the country. Every seven or so years, we get a million new people. So if you think about that, that's a lot of people who are coming from all over the world. We have something like Fortune 500 companies in our region. And so our role really is to help bridge the gap between newcomers, oldcomers, but more importantly, to make sure we're accentuating in our coverage what's most important in Dallas and also what our challenges are. Because to keep up with that pace of growth and keep up with just the businesses who are constantly looking to relocate here, the tax base that we have, the tax credits and all those incentives that elected officials are trying to put in force so that we continue to be a prosperous, growing state is really important. And so we see our role as vitally important to the future and sustainability of our region. It's interesting because just in the last year, in 2021, and it's a sign of how many people have moved in, you've had a big bump in subscriptions, I think 22% we were talking about before the break. Really interesting that's going on there. And I should just read you one thing. Above the door, the paper is not, based not far from here, and above the door is a quote from one of the very early publishers, J.B. Dealey, which says, it talks about the rights of the people to get from the newspaper both sides of every important question. And I wonder... When you've got a lot of people moving in, probably a multiplicity of thoughts coming from different parts of the country, different ways of life, different ways of politics as well. As a leader of a newsroom, what do you say to your reporters and what do you say to your, you know, your editorial team as well to kind of bring that broad church in to make sure that everybody can hear some sense, if they may not agree, but some sense that they appreciate where the paper's coming from. Absolutely. And so I, I want to stress that the newsroom, our charge is to really cover the issues, to be balanced in our approach, to make sure that even if we say someone's an expert, they really are. So we tell you more about them when we use that word. And it's really to, to provide the information to help you make decisions, to help our readers make decisions about what we're covering. Our editorial department, on the other hand, does a deep analysis and tells you this is how we think you should feel about this issue. And so we keep those two things separate. I do not manage the editorial department for that reason, right? I'm, I'm actually leading 180 people who are trying to help you decide those things for yourself, and so it would be a conflict of interest. So that's one way that we really protect our role and the ethical, you know, a lot of t- doctors have an oath. We have an ethical oath, and frankly, we terminate people if they don't follow those rules and regulations that we've laid out. And so we think it's really, really important. I mean, we think about the word choices we use. Last night, you had to be very careful with even the winners. You know, how do we describe who they are and what they stand for? Are we also giving both sides of the issue? I will also say that I think 
most of us are far more nuanced than one way or the other way, right? Most of what we deal with in life is not black and white, which actually is why things are often so complicated. And so I talk to our staff a lot about many things are shades of gray. And so let's make sure we're quoting people. We're not assuming that just because maybe you label yourself as conservative or liberal, you must feel that way about that issue. Everybody is, when we're far more thoughtful, I think, and more intelligent than that. And so we make sure, we try to really make sure our coverage reflects that. I wonder, Catrice, before coming to the, to the morning news, you worked in various other local papers, mm-hmm. and Indianapolis Star is one of them, and again, more Pulitzers and newsrooms that you've led that have had ex- exceptional success. I just want to tell you, there's people here coming from all over the world, tell us a bit about the state of local news Absolutely. in America right now, and why it's important that that survives more than ever, if you like. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I, I'm sure you guys read the headlines from all over the country and the world, basically, right? How people feel about things. I mean, you take something like COVID, and we just had so many different varying levels of, of thoughts about COVID. Some of us were like, oh, that's, it doesn't exist. It's made up. <laughs> some of us thought, this is really serious. Mm-hmm. I need to take some extreme precautions and read all I can to determine if I want my child to go to school or not, if I want to ever go back to the office again. And so there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. And so we think now more than ever, it's really, really important that local journalism is, sees itself and follows the rules and regulations we set out for ourselves so that we're providing that nuanced fact-based information, again, for you to make those decisions for yourself. I'll tell you that I think um, our challenge, though, is a lot of folks in the media don't trust, uh, in the country don't trust us. So most of our readership is questioning, well, who is the media? And, you know, I don't really think that you are someone who can give me a fair and balanced approach to the information that I'm seeking. And I think part of the reason is because we've done a really horrible job from the beginning of our existence of actually giving the value proposition of why what we do is so special that we're trained at this, that we go to school for this, that we're trained to be critical thinkers who don't just take what someone says, but we're skeptical about it. We're digging more and not just saying, oh, that's the fact you gave me, it must be true. Well, actually, is it? And so I think our challenge, you know, people have stopped subscribing in some cases. We have headlines every day. I had a headline that I read to my staff the other day about three newspapers in Alabama deciding the first of the year to no longer actually print print publication, right? We had a headline last week about another company. They're going to have another round of layoffs, and they've had them, you know, earlier this year. So it's really, really important for us to explain what we do and why we do it and to peel back the curtain on who we are and how we go about the work we do. That was Catrice Hardy, the executive editor of the Dallas Morning News, in conversation with Monocle's U.S. editor, Chris Lord. You are listening to a special edition of The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design, and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity, and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15.
This is The Briefing on Monocle 24 and we're looking back on our chief summit in Dallas. I'm Carlotta Rebello. Now, let's hear from Evelyn Webster, the CEO of the global fitness favorite SoulCycle. She told our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck about her company and what it stands for. Great to have you here from SoulCycle. Tell us, first of all, a very simple question. We can see through the windows, we we kind of know what SoulCycle does, but what does SoulCycle do? Well, I didn't expect that question. Isn't that funny? Uh, We move people to move the world. That's our mission. Um, If you literally look through the window, what you'll see is 60 people in a dark, candlelit room riding to the beat of music. Music is very, very important to the soul experience. There is an arc to a soul class, and it is more than the physical. Who amongst you have been to Soul Cycle? You have, you, you have th- good brand reach in this room. It's, very it's good. quite good, although shame on you for those people who have not been to Soul Cycle. <laughs> we will sort that out before we leave today. Um, so, for those of you that have experienced Soul Cycle, you know that we are an incredibly intense cardio workout. Sometimes we talk about ourselves as the original cardio party on a bike, but we're so much more than that because we are about the mind, the body, and the spirit, and that's really, really very important to the soul brand, to the ethos of who we are and what we do, and very important to our community. We'll come back to brand, but who who rocks up in a class, and who is your... Is there a key demographic? Are you mostly women? Are you mostly... Oh, okay. Young, who, who, who's, who's in the room? So I just want to, so, I mean, everybody will say we have a really broad demographic. Everybody, every brand says that. And it's true of SoulCycle. But I will tell you that I joined Soul from being a member of the community. I'm 53 years old. I was what I now know called a super, uh, super Soul rider. I rode many, many, many times every week. And so there are many people like me for whom soul was, one, their means of exercising, but also their sanctuary, their escape from their very busy lives and days. But we also have very young consumers. So it really is a very broad mix. It is predominantly female. Um, I think that's because men can't keep up. (laughs) Uh, Challenge. Just drop the mic. Um, Uh, So we are predominantly female, but we really do span a very broad age range. And some of our super soul riders are well into their 70s and still ride a double every morning with soul. And just a a tiny factoid, you told me last night how many classes a top teacher can do in a week, which is phenomenal. How many? Well, I mean, they can do up to 20, 25. I mean, we, we, we have one of our very, very, very successful instructors. It's called Sam Y., He teaches 22 classes a week, and we teach on the bike. So our instructors, we cast for our instructors. Uh, We don't recruit fitness professionals. It would be a mistake to think we are just a fitness business. We cast, we have a whole talent management team who manage talent acquisition and... uh, but they do t- we do teach them to be fitness professionals, and so they can ride 20-plus times a week on the bike. Now, motivation. You've talked about motivation there. Now, one of the interesting things is you joined in 2020, and one of the very first things you had to deal with was this notion of motivation because there were some people who had got to a point where they were like, I don't want to be called out in a class to work harder, to push harder. There were some hints that there'd been some body shaming issues, mm-hmm. and you dived straight in there at the very beginning. So tell us, with SoulCycle, how did you re-establish what the brand's values were, 
And then how did you take that back out to all of your staff? So first of all, um, I had spent 30 years working in media. Um, and media, as we all know, has gone through an incredible multi-decade period of transformation. And I thought, I've served my time. I'm going to go work for a company that is high growth mode, capital rich. Uh, and of course, I decided to join essentially a four-wall retail business in the midst of a pandemic where we literally ride like this. <laughs> and we sweat and pant. Um, so some would question the decision that I, I made to move in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. Of course, I didn't realize that I was joining in the midst of a pandemic. I thought I was joining to bring the business out of the pandemic. And I was, I was appointed to do three things. One, reopen the portfolio. That was a little bit slower because the pandemic continued. Two, reset the culture of the organization. You're referring to some spicy headlines uh, that you can, any of you can Google. Business Insider really doesn't like Seoul for reasons that I don't quite comprehend, but there have been quite a few negative headlines about the culture. And then the third goal that I was brought in to do was to um, create a strategic uh, growth plan so that we could continue to uh, accelerate our growth. But on the question of how did we reset the culture, which was a big reason that I was invited to join the company, it was all about values. And I just want to say one thing about values. Every company has them, pretty much. From my own direct experience, I would say most companies produce them for their corporate websites, for their investor relations, possibly to hang on the walls of their HQ. I've worked for companies where we have invested in value, the creation of values, where they have been weaponized. I literally once sat in a boardroom where somebody shook our values card at me, almost as if we were playing football and they were doing a red card. Evelyn, goes against our values. Um, I believe in values. I think values are like an SLA, like the service level agreement. It's, it, it's the, the rules or the guidelines that hold us accountable to ourselves and to each other. And so when I first joined Seoul, I worked with a organization who came in to, to undertake a culture audit to really help us understand what were the people saying on the ground. And what they were saying was that we had lost our way, that there had been some management missteps, that, that we were not living the values that we proclaimed to aspire to. And so we essentially created a new set of values that went beyond the values themselves. They have behaviors. Okay, here's the value. The value is integrity. What does, how does that translate into the behaviors that we do adopt and hold ourselves accountable Evelyn, to? Evelyn, just, uh, just give us a really good specific example of yeah. a value and how it, it then get, translates. Because, again, we, we want to make this a real practical thing for people yeah. to be able to take something away. That's great. Okay, well, let's use integrity because it's one of my favorites. So, and there, there were multiple behaviors, but I'll give you an example of one. So, the value is we act with integrity. What does that mean? It means the behavior, expected behavior is we do what we say we are going to do. What behavior do we not expect? We do not expect you to use opinion as fact, to make your case. And so for every one of our seven values, we have a series of behaviors that say, it means that this is how we behave with each other, and it means this is how we do not behave with each other. 
And that's how we hold each other accountable, which is why I always say values are not wallpaper. Values are our internal SLA. They are a living and breathing thing. They are the thing that we aspire to. They are the thing that, I, that we will hold each other accountable to, which means if you don't sign up to that SLA, you probably shouldn't be working at SoulCycle. And if you behave in such a way that you compromise our values, there will be consequences. And just that shift, the shift in mindset, in reframing the, the role and value of values at a company like SoulCycle made a very significant impact to the way that the company is operating. Evelyn Webster there, the CEO of global fitness favorite SoulCycle, in conversation with Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And finally, on our special edition of The Briefing, we're going to hear from Sid Mashburn, the store owner and designer. Sid told Andrew about his incredible design journey. Let's first of all just tell people a little bit about Sid. So the young gentleman from Mississippi goes to New York And in no time, you're the first menswear designer for J. Crew. How, how did this happen? Uh, well, it, included, it involved... Because you're, you're not a trained designer. No, as a matter of fact, I asked my dad if I could, you know, switch to fashion school in college, and he looked at me like, what is that? <laughs> um, and, so I got to, he, and so I got out of school, he said, sell your car and go to New York and see if you can, you know, follow up on that. And I did. And um, I got there and started working retail again, and... Uh, I met a girl on the beach, and she's, if anybody's seen The Devil Wears Prada, that was my wife's job. She didn't, for, unfortunately, she didn't write the book. Uh, <laughs> I wish she would have, but um, she worked for Polly Mellon, which was a brutal job, but a, a great job. Anyway, a, a friend of hers was leaving to go work for a nameless startup catalog company in New Jersey, which no one in New York would want to, you know, pursue, except for me. Um, and, and, a, and a few other people, but they offered me a position as a designer. Um, and I'd, I worked for a guy named Robert Lighton at British Khaki. Some of you in the room may remember British Khaki. It was a fantastic brand. Um, and he taught me, he, you know, after my job selling during the day, he taught me how to design. So um, I went to, to J. Crew, and J. Crew was, we, could, we, didn't, we couldn't do anything wrong. I mean, how, how old were you then, Sid? I was 24. So I kind of talk, talked my way into it. Um, but I'd been doing this since I'm, you know, a kid, really. And, and the, the job of designing and the job of retailing and working on the floor, someone mentioned it earlier, is, is they're, they're much more closely involved than you think because I, I'm not, we're not in the business of selling stuff. We're in the business of sharing stuff. And if we, if we make stuff, like I, there, there's nothing that goes on the floor that I, I don't wear or won't wear. Until sometimes I see it and I go, mm, we might have missed on that one a little bit. So I've got so many questions, but you, you, you're at J. Crew. A, a, a gentleman called Ralph phones you. You, you, you uh, agree to go and work for him. A gentleman called Tommy phones you. You, you agree to go and work for him. But after 20 years, your, your wife, who I believe you met at J. Crew, you take the decision to come back to the South. You're in New York. You're super successful. What was the the tug to bring you back to initially to Atlanta getting fired <laughs> that is a quite a catalyst for any decision um, but I was at um, I was at Lance End and um, you know uh, when we were going out there we at this point had or we had four kids when, when we left New York 
and Ann was not really keen on going to Wisconsin because uh, she'd lived there before. And so um, she was thinking I was not going to last past two years um, and that we'd be back in New York. And so it lasted about seven plus years. And, you know, there was a bit of a, of a, a dust up at the top. Um, and and um, if I were on the other side, I would have fired me too uh, because we didn't agree on where the brand was going. And so it was a great catalyst. And she was, you know, Anne's always pretty hopeful herself. And she was like, we're going back to New York, right? And I said, could we try this thing that I've been talking about for 30 years, which basically was, was a, um, an independent men's specialty store with product development capabilities. Okay, so, um, and that's what was missing because in the department stores, you know, they can de develop private label programs. The mono brands, that's what they're all about, but then the independent guy can have multi-brands but doesn't really know how to develop his product. So it was a very, very important thing for us to be not just the, the retailer but also the designer to do the manufacturing because I think it was Bruce or someone who mentioned that um, the knowledge I have makes, makes it easier for me to share the product with... with the and 90% is now produced by yourselves. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's also, it's, as the Europeans would call it, a total look. So it's everything from swimwear to tuxedos. And I mean this in a really nice way, but when people come in, are they wanting to look like Sid? And, and I mean, and everything feels very from a person. And, is, and on your website, you have a thing, hey, Sid, and you reply to people's questions. And I wonder if it's a very, very tight brand. Are, are you, the, are you the, the muse for yourself in a way? Yes, and partly is because I'm, um, I like a lot of different styles, and I like fashion, but we, we really, what's interesting is we're, we're really more of a traditional brand with some fashion sensibilities to us. So we, and, and also my experience at, at uh, J. Crew and at Land's End and, and at Polo and Tommy was, I, I pretty much understand what the American guy wants to wear and also what he'll aspire to wear. Um, because guys are looking for, for direction. They're, they're coming in wanting to buy confidence and, um, and a trusted uh, sort of neighborly approach to things. Like, mm, you shouldn't buy that also. That's as important as you should buy that. So, um, yeah, I, I work, you know, the, me being the muse has not been the worst thing. Also, I'm probably the, the last person that will accept a price increase before it goes to the floor because I really want to keep the prices you know, we, um, as accessible as possible because the aperture of opportunity goes from here out to here if you, if you have a wider, you know, price range. And we, we do work off of the old sort of pyramid of good, better, and best. So one of the third-party brands we have in the stores is Levi's. And then we also make a handmade suit, completely handmade in Italy, that can be $8,000. That was Sid Mashburn, the store owner and designer, in conversation with Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And that's all for this special edition of The Briefing, which was another chance to hear a few of the voices from our Chiefs Conference in Dallas. Today's programme was produced by Rhys James and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Carlotta Robello. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>